Hello and welcome to Signal Park, a podcast series by Shaw, which follows the key moments that have influenced the way artists think about sound. In this series, we'll be chatting to the musicians, sound artists and experimentalists who have pushed the boundaries in sound, hearing about the standout musical moments that have made them who they are today. I'm Zakia Sewell, and in this episode, I'll be chatting to the modular synth pioneer, Suzanne Ciani. Suzanne was one of the only women on the front line of electronic music in the 1970s. And since then, her ethereal and future-facing compositions have made her one of the most celebrated artists in her field. Hi, Suzanne. How are you doing? Great. Zakia, right? Yes. Yeah, it's Zakia. Zakia. It's nice to see you. It's a dark, gloomy night here in London, (laughs) quite the opposite of where you are. Right. I'm bathing in the sunshine. Her work in electronic sound earned her five Grammy nominations and infiltrated the mainstream through TV ads, Hollywood soundtracks and pinball machines, paving the way for the new generation of electronic experimenters that followed. Perhaps you can tell me a little bit about your your early life, your upbringing, um, and the, the sounds, the music that you grew up with. Well, I grew up in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, and I fell in love with music early on. Uh, my mom brought a wonderful piano into the house, a Steinway Grand, and uh, my older sisters were taking lessons I wanted to be a ballerina, but I found that I could play their lessons without having had any lessons. Mm. The other musical influence was my grandfather. I had an Italian grandfather who never learned to speak English, and he loved opera. So he lived for opera, and I grew up kind of enveloped in this Italian opera and in uh in the music that came into my home. And do you remember a particular moment when you realised that you wanted not only to listen and consume this music, but to be a musician? It's funny. It happened really early, and I can't explain it, but one of the things that comes to mind, my mom brought home this huge stack of vinyl records that had come from a fire sale, and they were all classical. And I would put these records on, and I would just go out of myself, you know, the the Rachmaninoff piano concerto, and I would just swoon to the emotional sound of this music. started to write, you know, so I had this, uh, there was some manuscript paper near the piano, I don't know why, but I would scribble on it, even if I didn't know what it all meant. And in fact, I eventually taught myself to read music. 
And how old were you when you received these records? And could you just sort of paint a picture of that scene? Would, would you listen alone? Would you listen first thing in the morning? Would it be last thing at night? Or were there people around? Or was it quite a private experience of you communing with this music? Well, in my house, it was hard to be alone. There were six children, so I had four sisters and one brother. We moved, when I was in the third grade, we moved to a nice big house where I loved the fact that I could hide. I also loved that I came from a big family because I had a lot of privacy. I don't think my parents knew my, my name half the time. <laughs> you know, really, they, there were just so many kids. And in fact, when I played the piano in that living room, I was convinced that nobody could hear me. And that's why I felt free to do what I wanted. It was only years later when somebody else played the piano <laughs> that I realized you could hear it all over the house. You know? So, yeah, my sister always accused me of hogging the piano, but that's just the way it was. <laughs> well, you, perhaps you did. <laughs> um, so your first love was the piano. Could you tell me how you came to study composition at Berkeley? So there I was trying to make uh, sense of all of this, you know, desire to be a composer. I felt I was a composer. I was in love with Chopin. I was playing his pieces over and over again. I was scribbling on paper, but I didn't have any clues. Then in high school, I found that my math teacher also was a musician, and he gave me private lessons in harmony. I discovered a school in Boston, the Longy School of Music. And what I found out when I went there, I did an audition, and they asked me to play, and I, you know, sat down and confidently started playing the Rachmaninoff piano concerto that I had been teaching myself. <laughs> and she said, play a scale. And I said, a scale? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that in my world, I had made it all up. I didn't know what a quarter note was or a half note. I played by ear. I played by relative visual cues. You know, a black note was maybe not as long as a white note, you know. But I didn't have any uh, structure to my learning. And so I started all over again. I went to college at Wellesley. I majored in music. I was in love with music uh, there, and then I went on to graduate school in composition, and I got a fellowship to uh, University of California at Berkeley. So my goal was to be the composer that I thought I was. And and what was your experience there? And what was could you set the scene a little bit about the sort of music scene around you as you were studying during that period? You know, did it feel like an exciting time to, to be in California? That university had been rated number one in music, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. But then when I got out there, I realized it was number one in musicology, the study of dead composers. Mm. So there wasn't really... I did study composition, and it was very uh, grueling and miserable, uh, Partly because, you know, in those days, we were 
We were at the crest of a wave of women's liberation, but we certainly weren't liberated and we weren't seen as people, really. You know, I had got a lot of criticism in my classes. Um, my conducting teachers told me that women had no right on the podium. My composition teacher told me what's wrong with women. They can't write uh, major pieces of music. And all of this was very discouraging. Mm. And I remember a moment where I went into the ladies' room and I looked in the mirror and I burst into tears. I knew that this just wasn't working. And crying, you know, wasn't going to help. And in fact, I was uh, denigrated, you know, really for even crying, for having emotions, you Mm -hmm. know, around this. Uh, So it was about that time. I think this was the, there were a lot of things going on then because Berkeley was one of the uh, focal centers of the free speech movement and the protests against the Vietnam War. And, uh, you know, there was another moment where I was in the piano room playing Chopin, and a rock came through the window. And I looked out the window, and I saw, you know, people running, throwing stones, tear gas. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, everything is up for grabs here. It's it's not normal times. Mm. So I think that the the historic period, the women's liberation movement, you know, we were burning bras, the uh, social upheaval, all of that laid the uh, the found foundation for my investigating something completely different, which was electronic music. Mm. So, as you know, in this podcast, we're focusing on these sort of pivotal moments in an artist's career which have gone on to transform the way they think about sound and their lives. So your first pivotal moment was hearing classical music for the first time. Tell me about this second moment that you've picked out that that kind of changed the course of your life, an encounter in a warehouse in Oakland. Right. So there I was in Berkeley and I I had heard of this electronic music phenomenon but I had never put my hands on it. But through some personal random luck, my my boyfriend's, uh, he was a teaching assistant in the art department, and the head of the art department was Harold Paris, who was a wonderful sculptor. And I met Harold, and I was expressing, you know, my fascination with this new possibility, and he said, oh, you have to meet my neighbor. And he introduced me to Don Buchla. For me, it was an epiphany because I saw this in his studio, this wall of modules. There were hundreds of lights in these modules. The modules all had uh, told you what they were thinking and they blinked. And they showed you the rhythm. They showed you the, you know, what was going on. And so if you went into this dark space, which was his huge studio, there were just this dancing of lights every place.
multiple speakers every place. He also had a swing in there, so you could get on a swing and and fly through the wow. musical space as well. <laughs> you know, he was very, he was very eccentric. He was the inventor of the analog modular music system. I mean, at this period, historically, this kind of thing was beginning to happen. You know, there was Putney in England, there was Moog on the East Coast, and Don Buchla on the West Coast. I looked at this and I said, this is where I belong. And I asked if I could work there. And I guess he said yes, because uh, he was a man of few words. <laughs> you know, Don, Don didn't talk a lot. And uh, I showed up for work. After my fellowship, I went to work for Don Buchla. And that connection, that moment, has come to define even my, my current artistic life. I'm curious about Buchla, the, 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 the man, because I think I remember reading somewhere a few years ago about how he used to put LSD on the, on the panels of the Buchla, that there was, there was a kind of cosmic uh, kind of mind-altering element to what he was trying to do with electronics. Um, so, I mean, how connected was this piece of equipment to the sort of counterculture at that time? Well, it was completely connected. I mean, you have to understand that the, the historic environment of those days, it was... Uh, it was counterculture. It was protest. It was drugs. It was, you know, I mean, I came from a women's college on the East Coast. And if you looked at me six months later, I was barefoot with hair down to my, you know, <laughs> with hair down to my waist. And, and, you know, I didn't wear shoes for two years. I mean, we were definitely not in, in, in the old norm. And Buchla, he was a, I guess you'd call him eccentric, but uh, we were also in Berkeley. And, you know, that was, that was kind of the birthing place of a lot of uh, music in those days, and the Grateful Dead were there. And I think the fascination with drugs, uh, people were looking for ways to induce that kind of phenomenal uh, sensory experience without drugs. You know, could you program lights? Could you program sound uh, to to give this psychedelic experience? And that's what Don, you know, he was a genius. And, and technology in those days was the, the ultimate tool for inventing. So you could produce a visual, uh, sonic, kind of, you know, the consciousness mm. of drugs. I took LSD a couple of times, you know, it just, of course, the trip seemed to be the same, so I wasn't that interested. But I know what it's like to stand in front of a rock and look at a piece of moss for five hours. (laughs) (laughs) And do you feel like you, and that sort of, you know, this, this music, which also kind of sounded like an alternate reality as well the 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 sounds that were created by this you know this technology and that you're talking about a time of protest a time of sort of rebellion against these sort of strictures and uh, rules and uh, oppressive aspects of society and here was this music that these sounds that seemed to offer a completely different vision and view i'd also be interested to know you know you kind of painted a picture of that 
you know, this having to study these sort of old, dead male composers at, while you're at Berkeley. And I wonder if, you know, this, this, this technology, this electronic music kind of offered you an alternative, a kind of path beyond the male-centric world of composition. Well, I worked completely intuitively and completely out of passion. You know, I was in love with this machine. I, it was why, I don't know, but I was. And people sometimes think, oh, well, how did you succeed in this male-dominated, high-tech world? And for me, it was not male-dominated. I, I, there, there weren't many men doing what I was doing. But even today, you know, my relationship with the machine is personal. I know you can define it uh, in so many ways, socially, uh, you know, historically, whatever. But for me, it's just this is my my friend. <laughs> you know, I, I'm so grateful to Don that he gave me the tool that allows me to, you know, express this part of me. Don was a master at creating interfaces, human interfaces. He he analyzed the body, the hand, the size of the hand. The, you know, he just went down to basics and masterminded an, an instrument that actually could be performed. It's not easy, but it's it's uh, it's a lot easier to perform this instrument than some of the other ones that are that are out there that don't give you feedback. Wow, and and what a blessing to, as you say, to have encountered it in that serendipitous sort of way that that it happened. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit to the third pivotal moment in your musical life, uh, when you first heard from Andy Votel from Finders Keepers Records. But in fact, before you before you go there, perhaps you could just tell me a little bit about you know, you, what you were doing at that time. Were you playing the bukla? Were you playing piano? Where, whereabouts were you in your life when you, uh, when, when Andy Votel got in touch with you? When Andy got in touch with me, I was not back with the bukla. I had reconnected with Don Bukla because I moved back to the West Coast after New York. And I reconnected with Bukla and we became buddies. But it was nothing to do with uh, music, really. We played tennis. And wow. I loved his wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unexpected twist. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I always say there are two kinds of people in the world, those who love tennis and those who don't. And Andy, I remember Andy contacted me. I had no idea who he was. I think it took two years for me to actually respond because I just didn't get it. You know, he he sent me, at one point, he said, well, let me send you some of the the albums we release. And he sent me these albums, and I couldn't relate to any of them at all. I thought, what is this? Um, so uh, then he said, well, I'd like to release some unreleased historic materials. And here I had devoted my life to making these, you know, very expensive studio recordings that were technologically superior and perfect and he wanted to release things that I'd done in my garage <laughs> in Berkeley and I thought this is ridiculous so he started to release them and 
I was very shy about it. I didn't really, I, I didn't like the fact that it was, it was getting attention because I didn't know how to deal with that with my audience. So I had cultivated my own audience, which loved my romantic piano electronic music. And I didn't want to scare them with all this weird stuff in the early days. So there was one moment where Andy came to the United States and he said, we're going to do a show and tell in Los Angeles and you're going to come down. I said, well, I said, it's great, but please don't, don't use my name. If you publicize this with my name, it will be a disaster because my fans will think that, you know, it's, I'm going to be doing something with my, the music that they love. And lo and behold, uh, you know, all these people showed up at this event, and some of them were irate. You know, there was a lot of negative response mm. when he, you know, nowadays there are no secrets. So if you release an album in, in England from Manchester, it pops up on Amazon. And somebody says, oh, new Chani album. And then somebody says, this isn't a Chani album. <laughs> this is like... What is this? You know, one star or, you know, they just like dump it. And so there was this moment of crisis where my old audience was insulted by this, you know, this old music. But all of a sudden I had a new audience. And the new audience was fine. They said, you know what? My mom listened to your piano music. And I love your piano music I grew up with, but I love your electronic music. And I realized there was space that I didn't need to control it, that I couldn't control it. But I love, I love that idea of the kind of the irate people feel excited about your, your, new, your new piano album and then sort of thinking, what's this? Um, but, you know, as you say, you can't, you can't resist that, that flow. And it happens so much, doesn't it, where these sort of old, these old sort of ghosts from the past emerge and things have a new life. Um, so I'm curious, what was, what was the first record that, that Andy released of yours? One of the early ones was called Lixiviation, and it actually had some of my early commercial sound design on it, like the Coca-Cola Pop and Pour. Coca-Cola Pop and Pour. The Atari logo. You know, I got a lot of awards in, in advertising for sound design. And so, yeah, it was kind of like, how can you release this? I just like, because I really, you know, I'm living out here uh, in a remote kind of place at the end of a dirt road on the ocean, and I wasn't paying attention, and I didn't realize that there was this whole revolution going on in analog synthesis. So, you know, the kids uh, you know, were rediscovering vinyl cassettes. You know, Andy released in cassette form. I, I didn't get it. It's like, what is this? You know? And then I realized that that kind of retrograde motion was perfect for re-understanding 
the music that never was understood the first time around. So I woke up and I said, oh my God, what an opportunity for electronic music that we have another chance thanks to the kids. So, you know, what what has the impact been on you and, and your life, this, you know, having your music out again in the limelight, having this sort of resurgence of interest in your work and a new a new audience? Well, you know, it is um it's quite ecstatic actually. Um and I don't know that I really understand it, but uh I have been running around the, the planet, right? Up until COVID. So now I've had a bit of a stay-at-home time. Um, but I want to make an impact. You know, why am I doing all of this now? I guess, uh, you know, the early days, we didn't finish the work we were doing. We, we thought that everybody would understand. And it didn't happen. You know, people didn't catch on. They thought it was a keyboard instrument. So now we have round two, where the kids understand that it's not a keyboard instrument. And they're in love, just like I was, with analog, with the interface, with the fact that you can turn a knob and hear a result, make a patch, hear a result. It's a feedback system. It's not digital. It's really you know, tactile, and I would be very happy if some young person came along and uh, demonstrated, you know, beyond my capabilities even, what can be done with these machines. You know, we have to think. We need to rethink what these machines need to be. I'm Zakia Sewell, and you've been listening to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw. This episode was recorded remotely with the SM7B.